Uh, well, uh, good evening, uh, everyone. It's really nice for me to be back. I've been away for quite a bit this summer. Uh, I hear you've had a great time here. And uh, as normal, at the start of uh, September, it usually marks the start of our sort of year, I guess, as a church. We sort of tend to follow the academic year. And so we've got uh, some great things lined up uh, this term on a Sunday. Uh, in just a couple of weeks' time, we've got our vision, a couple of Sundays where we talk about what God's calling us to as church and specifically here in Central. And then after that, we begin a new preaching series, uh, which is called The Genius of Jesus, uh, which is based in the book of Matthew. And uh, I think we're in for a real treat with that series. Really excited about preaching into that. And obviously, this term we have lots of new and returning students coming back to us. I don't know if you like it when everyone comes back, but I love it. I love having lots more students amongst us. It's something that God's called us to. Um, and we, as Jack has said, we're going to continue to focus on prayer. That's why we're highlighting those bookmarks again, which will lead us all the way up till Christmas. Anyone thought about Christmas yet? Uh, and we've got a few carol services planned uh, uh, at the beginning of December. But to Today, uh, it's our penultimate week in this series that we've been looking at, uh, which is basically Psalms that are quoted in Scripture. And today's no difference. We're going to look at, at the New Testament and we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And I've uh, entitled this preach, Craving God's Word and presence. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn to 1 Peter 2? And if you haven't, we're going to have it on the screen for you in just a moment. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 verse 1 says this, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit. And before I go any further, just by way of Bible study etiquette, if you ever start reading with the word therefore, you've got to ask, what is it therefore? Because that word therefore is linking what was previously said to what it's about to say. So we're just actually going to go back into chapter 1 just really quickly. We're looking at verse 23 to 25. So 1 Peter 1 says this. This is the preceding chapter. It says, for you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God for all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field the grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord endures forever and this is the word that was preached to you so Peter is talking about someone becoming a Christian, being born again, moving from not a Christian to a Christian. And the transformation is so radical that it can only come through the power of God's word and his spirit. And so when, Paul start, um, sorry, when Peter starts chapter 2, he's saying in light of this big transformation that's happened when you became a Christian, when you became new, when you were filled with a new hope, in light of that, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, so we're back into chapter 2, and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, that's a reference to what went before, new Christians, newborn babies, crave pure spirit spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good 
And Peter there is quoting Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Okay, well, let's pray, shall we, as we look at these verses together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this time together. Thank you, God, that you want to transform our lives. Thank you that many of us in the room have experienced that sort of change. We've experienced your goodness, your grace, your new life. You've ruined us forever going back to life apart from you. And we pray, God, that you would use these verses to keep us growing and maturing and pursuing you passionately. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you this evening about a really subtle thing, but something that is a clear and present danger in our community, in our church community. I want to talk to you tonight about spiritual fatalism. Spiritual fatalism is just a fancy way of describing the belief or the feeling that you are stuck the way that you are. And so you just have this deep sort of sense inside that I'm never going to change. I'm never going to become one of those passionate people that I see at church. It's a feeling that your genes, your background, your gender, your growing up years have determined the person that you are and it is fixed. Like nothing, there's nothing you can do to move on from that. Fatalism says, I just can't create desires or passion for God. And if they're not there, they're never going to be there. And it's fascinating, if you're not a Christian here tonight, you can also have a spiritual fatalism. Which basically says, I look around me and see these amazing Christians that seem to have this real sense of a relationship with God. They seem to live really godly lives. They're super nice and friendly. And that's just not me. That feels like a million miles from where I'm at. And so you have sort of almost decided a little bit that you can not change either. And spiritual fatalism in a church community is really tragic because it leaves people stuck. It leaves sort of people without any hopes or dreams for things to be different in the future. It means that really we're bored as a community because when we turn up on a Sunday dutifully, we don't have any expectation or excitement or hunger for things to be different because it's just going to be the same old, same old. And um, these verses that we're studying tonight tell us that spiritual fatalism is a lie. It's a deception. Uh, You are not stuck. You are not fixed. And I want to use the next 20 minutes to hopefully explain why I believe that. So everyone with me so far? Yeah, great. So first point is this, and I've called it craving spiritual milk. I want to draw your attention to verse 1 that says, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Peter's saying, in light of this massive transformation that's happened when you became a Christian, remove, literally take off the clothes that you used to wear. So when you used to wear malice and deceit, hypocrisy, those things are incompatible with the new 
you. As she reminded me of when uh, my wife and I first, uh, uh, we had our first lodger living with us. We had been married six months. We wanted someone to sort of share our family with us. So we opened up our home to a guy who was, he was actually temping and he was working on a pig farm. And so he'd spend all his day working with the pigs and he'd come home absolutely stinking of pigs. And Pip basically refused to let him in the house. And fortunately, we had like a back alley that led to the back of the house. And our bathroom was on the ground floor at the back of the house. And so Pip would make this lodger um, basically strip in the garden and then make a run for it inside the house and into the bathroom and get clean before he came into the house. So in other words, his new identity as a member of the Hatch family meant he had to take off remove his old stinky clothes. There was no place for them in our family. And Peter's saying the same. He's saying that behaviour, that hypocrisy, that deceit, as a member of God's household, that, there's no place for that here. Take them off. You've got some new clothes to wear. So how? How do we do that as Christians? That's Christian maturity. How do we do it? Well, it's really fascinating that the Bible doesn't give us, give, give us a list of things we need to do. Rather, Peter tells us to desire something. Verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. So I don't know if you've been around newborn babies, but... They're very thirsty. In fact, every three hours or so, they need feeding. Not just in the day, but at night. And if you meet parents with newborn children, they just have that frazzled look about them as they've responded to the baby's demand to or craving for milk. And what's going on here in answer to that question, how do we grow? How do we break spiritual fatalism? Well, we're told to crave. We're told to long. We're told to desire like a baby. Verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. So I wonder what it means by spiritual milk. Well, let's get there in a moment, but I want to say this. If you in any shape or form feel stuck, like when I talk about spiritual fatalism, that really rings a bell with you. This is telling us you don't need to be stuck. You need to get those desires. You need to get the desires that you, have, that, that you don't have. They're available. God's going to give them to you. And I think that's amazing. Instead of being just told that we have to work really, really hard, we're, to, we're told to treasure Jesus so much. And if you don't want to treasure Jesus much, you're allowed to go to God and ask him for help so that you will treasure him. So what are we desiring? What, what are we craving for? Well, verse 2 tells, it's, tells us it's spiritual milk. And again, it's really helpful to know what happened in the chapter before because that helps explain what spiritual milk is. Spiritual milk is the thing that transformed us and made us new and made us experience that change. And so clearly it's the Word, it's the Bible, but it's also... Uh, the way the Holy Spirit brings the Bible to life in our hearts and unpacks the good news of Jesus. 
So pure spiritual milk is the Holy Spirit ignition and understanding of the Word of God that leads to change. It's definitely not just knowing lots about our Bibles. Knowing lots about our Bibles is like someone who eats food but then vomits it up before actually digesting it. If we don't have change in our life as we grow in our knowledge. The Holy Spirit must make the Bible sing in our lives. And so the rebuke to spiritual fatalism is that God makes available longing for him. How do we get them? Well, we get them through more of the Holy Spirit igniting the Bible through encounter in a way that leads to change. Now, I don't know what you're feeling right now, but as I was thinking about this, I've got massive problems with someone telling me that I should desire something because I have all sorts of objections to that. That just feels a strange thing. How can you command someone to have a desire? Like my whole problem is that I don't have the strength of desire that I want. So how does it help just telling me that I should have more of it? Well, I believe a few things. Firstly, I believe that the God that we worship wouldn't uh, command us to desire something unless he would provide the desire itself. So God's just not leading us, like giving us a red herring or leading us up a blind alley. If he's asking us to desire, God will give us what we need for the desire to happen. Secondly, God's quite good at impossible and difficult things. And so if you look at your life and think, man, I've been a Christian a while and I feel like that spiritual fatalism is just really getting a grip of my life. I'm not changing the way I thought. I'm just, I'm losing what I, the first love I, I had. Well, you know, if you truly believe in the God that we worship, your life and him being able to interrupt your life and change your life and transform your life is, is easy for the God that we worship. The God that I worship, can, he specialises in people that are a little bit messy and mixed up and, and he, he's done pretty good in my life as a very messed up person and I know that he can do it in yours. And thirdly, I believe that if you're a Christian in the room, most of you have already felt this desire before. And that's what Peter is driving at in verse 3. So Peter finishes the sentence by adding, verse 3, Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's fascinating that he uses those precise words which are taken from Psalm 34. We're just going to look at that in a moment. The Psalms are in the, in the Old Testament and they're a collection of songs songs that have been written down and often the song has been written because a certain thing has happened there's been a certain experience there's often a story behind the psalm and in psalm 34 it's no different actually it tells you in your bible what the story is and the story is this that there was a, a, a man called David who God chooses as king but the current king a man called King Saul well he wasn't too happy about this King, this, this David usurping him and becoming king himself. So Saul tried to kill David. And David, instead of hiding out uh, sort of in the desert of Judea, which would have probably been a lot safer, David chooses to go over into enemy territory, into Philistine. 
If you know anything about King David, you probably know the most famous story is David defeating Goliath. Goliath was the Philistine champion, the representative of the whole army. And so David kills Goliath and therefore defeats the Philistines. And so David is not a popular person in Philistine at all. But secondly, just to complicate the story, as he leaves his own country and goes into enemy territory, he wants to have a weapon on him. The only weapon that he can find is Goliath's old sword. So you imagine this huge hulking great sword that he carries around with him. So we've got the enemy of Philistine, we've got the proof that he killed their champion and he wanders into enemy territory. He promptly gets arrested and he's brought to the king's palace and before the king's palace he's obviously facing death. He puts on an Oscar winning performance. Anyone know what he pretends to do? He pretends to be mad. So the Bible describes that he's, uh, he's dribbling, salivating down his clothes, he's scratching at the doors, pretending to be mad. And so the king, the king sort of takes pity on him. And uh, King Abimelech eventually lets him go and sends him back to his own country. And so it's an unbelievable story. It's amazing stories are like that in the Bible, isn't it? Unbelievable story. And I'm sure David would have told all his friends and family about it. You can imagine grandchildren listening to this incredible story. And in Psalm 34, he summarizes how he feels towards God about this incredible escape. And he says in Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So David tasted God's goodness in an incredible way. It impacts his life and he is amazed at what God has done. It's interesting he uses those words. Taste is a very powerful thing. Taste influences our perception. And I know I run the risk here of totally losing you for the rest of the sermon. But right now I just want you to think about your favourite food. Okay. Mashed potato. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you? This is a dangerous thing. Turn to the person next to you and just describe your favourite meal. Can you do that? What would you have tonight? If I could cook you anything tonight, what would you have? What would you have? Okay, I think that'll do. It is amazing from here watching all of you start smiling as you're imagining the food that you want to eat. Incredible. Does anyone here, does anyone here have a favourite food that they've never actually eaten? No, that would be weird, wouldn't it, to have a favourite food that you've not eaten? Taste informs our opinions. Peter is trying to be really practical with us here. He's saying, have confidence in what I am saying to you because you have already tasted and seen God and the taste is good. So just like David experienced God's goodness in an impossible escape, so you can too. So if you're a Christian in the room, my question for you is, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? 
So leverage that experience when it comes to growing as a Christian. That's my second point. Leverage your experience. Peter says, take your experience that God is good, that he tastes good, to give you confidence to ask God to give you desire for him, to give you more desire for him. So this is what we've learned. The argument against spiritual fatalism is that God makes available a longing, a craving, a desire for him. Passion for God isn't just for the godly minority. How do we get that passion and desire? Well, through more of the Holy Spirit igniting the Bible in a way that leads to real change and impact. How do we trust that advice? Well, we leverage our experience. You've tasted God's goodness before, so go and taste it again. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, to finish, I want to give some thoughts for us corporately. So how we do that when we gather together, and I also just want to say a couple of things for anyone here that's not a Christian yet, how it applies to you. So let me just talk about our Sunday gatherings. What I've seen is that spiritual fatalism can lead to our Sunday services being painfully lacking any hunger or desire for more. So if you're not coming expectant, I think you've probably got two different sorts of postures when you come to a service on a Sunday. The first posture is that of a consumer. So you say, I'll come, but you need to entertain me. I'll come as long as you look after my kids. Or I'll come and I want you to speak so well and I want the band to do such a brilliant job with the songs and I want the welcome team to do such a great job with the welcome that somehow that stirs me out of my boredom and apathy and makes me want to pursue God. Come and let someone else serve me. And there's no sense of wonder, no sense of expectation. There's no, wow, God could meet with me today. And the problem is you will always go home hungry because we are not that entertaining. Like this church, we don't like spend all of our time doing this flash production for you on a Sunday so we can have you just come and consume. But we're a family together. And if you don't come as a consumer, the other sort of response a little bit is an unexpectant servant. So we come as a servant, so we're here to help others, but there's no expectation in our hearts. So, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see so many of you serving, so please don't hear me speaking against that. But there's a great danger that we just dutifully serve people without the presence and power of God without this sense of wonder and expectation that God could break in and we could encounter him at any moment. You see, if we don't have that, then we're just a nice community group serving each other. And it's hard because serving, when you serve, you actually feel fairly godly. But listen, if there's no longer an appetite to taste God's goodness then we won't leave him well-fed either. You've actually got to put the food in your mouth to taste it. So it's no good just sitting there smelling it. We've got to crave spiritual milk and taste and see that it is good. 
when God provided manna in the desert for the people of God, um, unless they got up early and went and collected it in the mornings, they wouldn't have any food for the rest of the day. They had to go and receive what God had provided. So listen, I don't know what you're thinking about those two types of people, whether you're a blend of that, whether you're something different altogether, but I'm going to ask you to do a vulnerable thing. I want you just to turn back to the people around you, and I just want you to talk about this for a couple of moments. Does this resonate with you at all? Is this something that you're aware of in your own life? Or if not, like, how do you overcome that? What, like, what's different in your lives? So if you're a guest here, this is, or you just absolutely hate having to engage during a preach, then you can just sit quietly and listen to everyone else. But if you feel brave enough, can you just turn in two, threes and fours? Why don't we just talk about this together? Where does spiritual fatalism take root in your life? What's it look like for you? you do that? Just turn, have a little conversation, just a couple of minutes. Okay. Well done, everyone. Can I just, uh, can I just take a moment just to hear some feedback? Like, wh- where does this hit home for you? Wh- wh- how does this apply to your life? I mean, we don't want to be that sort of church family, do we? When we come as to gather together, the Bible paints this beautiful picture of a body with all of us having different parts, and there's this expectation that God is in our midst. So what can we do to change it? What can we do to apply what we've just heard about? Can you just talk again, just really briefly, with those same people? Like, what, what do you think you need to do differently when you come on a Sunday to stop these things being at work in our lives? Can you do that for a moment? Let's give it a go. Okay, everyone, well done. So let's just uh, talk about this together. Um, you know, just if I could just share personally, I, you know, I go to two or three services every Sunday. I've been doing it for years and years, and this is a live issue for me. Because uh, this is a live issue for me, uh, not wanting to be a, a bit of a fake at the front, or I'm a human being. I'm not like a robotic pastor that you know. I've got this outfit that when I put on, I'm suddenly like, God's amazing and everything's perfect. But I know over the years I've practiced the discipline of some of these things that we have talked about in preparing my heart in readiness to come and be with you. And I guess my testimony would be there is joy on the other side of surrender. So when we're willing to come and and often perhaps let go of things that feel immediate and make some really good choices with how we approach God and how we approach each other, it can feel very difficult in the moment, but over the long term, it changes the way I experience this. And I, there's a genuine sense of joy being with you in God's presence. And so there is joy to be had on the other side of surrender, but you almost we need to do the surrendering of a few things to get there. And I guess I wanted to encourage you and encourage us as a gathering We desperately desire the presence of God amongst us. We want to encounter the living God. We want to serve one another. We want to see the best in one another. But if we have this consumer mentality or this unexpected servant mentality, then we will all leave this place hungry and we would all have missed out. And I I know looking at you that you don't want that either. So... um, 
perhaps in some of the things that you talked about, perhaps a great thing to do from here is to go away and think, what does this mean, mean for me personally? And perhaps talk in your mission groups or talk in your discipleship triplets about this. I just want to say just quickly, if you're not a Christian in the room and you know that you can almost compare yourself with Christians and think that that feels like a, a long way away or that's just not me, just want to say a couple of things to you. Firstly, like spend some time with people that are really hungry for Jesus. Like It's good to be with skeptics and people with the same questions as you, but get with some people that really passionately have faith. And what you'll find is, is as you watch them eat, as you watch them taste that Jesus is good, you might too grow in your hunger. You know, sometimes when you watch someone eat a really nice meal and by the end of it, you're like, I want some of what they're having. There's a similar dynamic that happens. And secondly, community and Sunday services is where Christians come and eat together. And so this is a really good place to be. And thirdly, being a Christian, ultimately, you've got to taste it. There's something about tasting Jesus that will convince you. If you wait until you're convinced first and then try and engage with faith, you might be waiting a really long time. Sometimes you have to engage first. Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to taste me. I want you to eat me. And it's a really weird thing to say. But we just know as Christians, if you were to step into our shoes as Christians, experience the relationship with God that we have, you'd be convinced in a moment. And so for some of you here that aren't Christians yet, it's that step to say, God, if you're there, I want to know you. I want to experience you. I want the life that you promised to the full. So should we stand? We're going to give this time to worship now. Pete and the band are going to lead us. Uh, I want to start perhaps by praying a prayer of confession and repentance. But then I'd love just to have this time where we get to enjoy God's presence, where you ask the Holy Spirit to give you more desire for him, to release passion in your hearts for him. So should we just bow our heads for a moment? Heavenly Father, um, just thank you that um, we've, got, we've had time to look at this together. God, we're so sorry where we, um, we're, we're spiritual fatalism has just sort of taken hold of our hearts and minds where perhaps we've become consumers or we've backed off or in some way we, uh, uh, we, we're serving but with no expectation to encounter you in our hearts. And we just say, God, that's not... That's not Christian, the Christian life. It's not Christian community, and we're sorry. And, and here and now, we want to turn to you, and we want to turn with our arms open wide, our hearts open to you. We want to say, come Holy Spirit, and give us desire again. Lord, just fan the flames of passion in our hearts again for you, and help us to be family together. Help us to truly love each other. In your name we pray. Amen.